0: Okay. The S&P, the Isaac, stops. This is Motley Fool
1: Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast. That, well, we've got two one hundred billion dollar problems. Good problem to have. Well, unfortunately, it's not our money, mate. But we've got a couple of problems to resolve. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, is Doctor Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. G'day, Captain. How are you, mate? I am great. How are yeah? you? I'm exceptionally well, thank you. Other than a bit of a dicky knee at the moment. The old knee kept me away from a member event up in Brisbane this time last week. You did a wonderful job for our Platinum members holding the fort. Thank you for doing that. And we had to record last week's podcast at my place with my leg up. So if the sound was a bit funny last week, that's exactly why. The good news, we're back in the wonderful bosom of Triple M here in the Sydney studios back making making podcasts the proper way.
2: Oh, it sounds like a pun, you know, having the leg up. You've got to ah, leg up on there something. you go. are you, like on that. fire already.
1: Well, unintentionally too, which is even the better one. <laughs> Mate, we started with a tangent. At some point, the tangents can't be tangents anymore and actually need to become just the mainstay of the podcast, I think. That's it.
2: Like this is the tangent podcast.
1: <laughs> this was Motley Fool Money. Now it's Motley Fool Tangent. <laughs> uh, let's get on with that. Mate, um, we've got a f- bit to cover this week, so let's go.
0: Motley Fool Money.
1: Financial advice for real people,
0: not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward
1: slash triple M. Mate, the United States of America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, and the home of the tweeter-in-chief, and the US Fed chair, who gets to basically kind of conduct this financial orchestra, whichever direction he needs to, and those two guys have been well and truly in the news this week. The ASX has been buffeted around a little bit, again, no pun intended, Uncle Warren, um, With with Donald Trump tweeting, was it overnight? Thursday night? Um, It was overnight. He's going to put 10% tariffs on the rest of the Chinese exports or imports into the US that aren't already taxed. So now effectively everything coming out of China to the US is now going to be more expensive for the poor old Yanks to buy. And then the US Fed Chair Jerome Powell cut rates during the week saying, well, it's not uh, the old breakup line, right? It's not me, it's you. The rest (laughs) of the world, it's not me, it's you. You're the problem. Uh, Rates are going to have to be cut here. Although we did also kind of say that this wasn't the beginning of a, a cycle of cuts. It was kind of like a... I don't know what to call it. I'm I'm hesitant to blame Donald Trump for it, but it felt like one of those cuts that kind of was a a bit of a pressure reliever, a bit of a kind of um, some extra level of protection, I think, against what might come down the pike. So let's go through those in some sort of order. Maybe we'll start with Jerome. Jerome Powell, the the Fed chair, cutting rates, 0.25% is sliced off US cash rates. What's your take on what's going on? Should we worry? Is the rest of the world really in that much trouble? What's, What's the story?
2: Yeah, so um, the, the U.S. economy r- continues to be strong, mm-hmm. and the the issue I think is that rates are effectively negative. You know, it almost seems like a bit of a currency war, but uh, that's going now, on. was my take, right? Yeah, yeah. Keep going. So the, the European economy is kind of just tr- you know just moving along. Can we say sputtering. You know sputtering maybe you know like uh, almost seems to be walking on one leg <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's, what, that's my take
2: um uh, so the rates are ne- almost negative right. like in most of europe yep. um uh, essentially you know china's growth is slowing i mean f- Six percent growth is not bad, but it's it's less than seven percent. If you if you know relatively nice speaking. problem to have, but I take <laughs> your point.
1: Yeah, the rate um, the rate of growth is slowing. Yeah,
2: yeah. A, l- a lot of the emerging economies are actually not doing very well, right? I mean, so, that, so 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 the, there is bit of this. The, there's the U.S., maybe U.K. was actually doing reasonably well, but there's Brexit mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Uh, on the corner. So, oh,
1: PM Boris, we didn't even talk. Uh, did we talk about that last week? We did actually. We did. We actually. did. We we did. did. So All if right.
2: you if you put everything on into perspective, like you have, you know, how long can America keep doing well when the rest of the world? Mm-hmm. Kind of not does well, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think Powell called it the mid cycle adjustment. <laughs> Quite love
1: central, central bankers, exactly yeah. said, said a lot without saying anything at all, <laughs>
2: yeah. And and then, the market, and then the market was unhappy because the market basically was looking for two cuts. Um, <laughs> uh, and I was thinking, you know, Powell is oh, not man. uh not RRBH, oh, he's right because he's be a get, central you know, banker, so um, yeah. Uh, so then he walked his, you know, it seemed like he first said that there's you know this was just a mid cycle, mm-hmm. uh, um. um correction which basically means that i'm going to be only one cut <laughs> and then because the market short toward a tantrum he changed his tune later on to say well you know we 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 are not tightening anymore so you know we're just watching the situation and
1: et cetera, et cetera." Et cetera. i'm really uh, sick of of central bankers feeling like they need to please the markets i have to say like yeah. <laughs> the markets are there to respond to what regulators do not vice versa talk about regulatory company anyway so, Keep
2: so yeah, the, the long term. I mean, so there's a Fed report uh, that I was looking at, which basically says you know the, most of the Fed committee members, which are mm. people basically who sit sit on the Federal Reserve's uh, board, mm. uh, and their own analysts and things like that, which you know they think that the long term rates are going to be around like that, two to two point five percent. So we kind of in that range, yeah, anyways. Okay. So either we go up a little bit or go down a little bit, <laughs> uh, but it seems to be we are in that range right now. If you assume that their research is valid and is going Going to hold for Mm. the Mm. next little while. So,
1: and you mentioned currency. Well, this is interesting too because there is some sense, and this is this is where things get a bit nutty. Quite frankly, at one level, currencies are supposed to fluctuate when economies are weaker and stronger. Right, the whole idea of a floating currency is supposed to say, okay, well, while Europe's weak, the euro will be worth less because it makes European import or imports into Europe more expensive, European exports cheaper, therefore rebalancing their economy, kind of giving them a leg up. That was the whole Greek or the Grexit kind of story was, you know, do they or don't they have their own currency? That's how they're kind of supposed to work. Hmm. At some level though, the rest of the world gets jealous and says, excuse me, well if you're doing better, that means I'm doing, relatively speaking, worse. So I'm going to move my currency so that you're not getting too much of a benefit. And there's this is kind of weird dance going on where everyone agrees that the currency should float, but then no one's really happy to be on the other side of that <laughs> transaction, right? It's like, yeah. you know, he- heads I win, tails I don't lose. It doesn't yeah. really work in a two-party transaction. And to some degree, that's exactly right. When the US economy is so strong, relatively speaking, to, uh, compared to the rest of the world or most of the rest of the world, they do feel like they've got to kind of do something to keep US prosperity rolling along. There seems like a lot of short-termism in the world. Is that, is that
2: fair? I think that's fair. Like, I mean, you know, when you look at the U.S. economy, I mean, 50-year lows of mm. unemployment, right? How much lower can it really get? Right, right, right. right? Um, if you look at, you know... Phenomenal. Sort of, you know, if you look at the type of companies they've got and they're just growing fast and doing mm. well, you mm. know, they, they, so the, their innovation engine is, is still... It's kind of the
1: price of success. It's bit. the price.
2: Of, you know, so you've got to pay a little bit of price of success right, right. for the other guys kind of suffering <laughs> along, so... And but, this is yeah, kind of
1: that Trump thing of like the, you know, yeah. and again... Without getting political, particularly, most diplomacy for years has been of the win-win kind, where you kind of realise that okay, we'll win, we'll win a lot, you'll win a bit, but kind of we're both okay. Yeah. Um, that zero-sum game seems to be seen by the current administration as well. We win, but then we want to win even more, and we want you to lose to make sure we win better, which either is 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 smart and thoughtful and and parochial in a in a, in a positive sense. Or it potentially is that short-termism that I talked about. That what's fine is that the U.S. wins for five or ten years, but if you kind of wreck the rest of the economy in the pro—I mean, arguably, power is cutting because the U.S. is winning too much. But uh, you know, to, uh, the rest of the world needs to kind of get some benefit from this to kind of keep a, a well-functioning global. You know, um, integrated economy rolling.
2: Yeah, so I think the I think the part of the I think the part of the issue is that the world's economy is not kind of integrated, or not as integrated as we'd like it to be, right, or we right. think it is, right? So I'll give you like I'll give you again. I'm going on a bit of a tangent. I'll give you a weird example. Um, if you are, uh, and I'm not going to use politically charged China yeah, yeah. or, or <laughs> stuff, I'm just going to use. I'll use India as an example. If yep. you're going to import mm-hmm. uh, a U.S. dollar forty thousand and above car. Yes, into India.
1: So a new Tesla, for example.
2: Just any like anything, <laughs> like a Mercedes okay, Benz. Okay, Mercedes Benz. That's Mercedes Benz, right? You're going to be paying a hundred percent. Tax.
1: Yeah, right. On that. Right, right, right. That's a tariff. Same right? as same Ross ta- uh, going to Japan, right? Same same kind of. Scenario. Exactly. So yep.
2: it's not that you know the world is one huge market, right, and right. you know, and that and and it has you know I get it that if you if you send all these expensive stuff, then you know maybe you have you have GST or VAT or whatever mm-hmm, you call mm-hmm. it, like value added tax. So yeah. That is tax yep. being 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 there. But well, why why are you putting that import mm. duty on it, right? Mm. Because you think a you can charge the rich people in that country because mm-hmm. they can afford to pay for it. Yep. But at the same time, you're also creating a Environment where it's a bit of an anti competitive environment, right? Yeah, totally. Ideally, what you want is that ideally, the ideal environment would be you allow all car. Exporters to be able to export the cars into India, yep. and then you in in return you expect that the Indian car companies compete, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. But you're creating a little bit of favorable environment for. So, and this is not just true in India; it's true in Europe; it's true in oh, China. Uh, it was true in Australia uh, it's, it's true. In Australia. Well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's tr- still true, right? We mm-hmm. would we you know we we still apply various sort of taxes and mm-hmm. you know, uh, import duties on stuff that we you know import, yep. right? So, yep. mm, uh, so I think maybe maybe there is there is this issue of the world actually kind of you know agreeing on uh, maybe a global taxation policy if more of a free trade we, we talk about free trade but it's not really free trade yes that's right that's right, right. so i think that that's part of the problem too
1: it certainly is. i don't i don't know that's resolved by the us imposing tariffs for the record but no maybe that's a good
2: conversation. <laughs> that that we will agree <laughs> on
1: <laughs> yeah you, yeah it's a good point actually identifying the problem and then having a suitable solution are two different things that don't always go hand in hand yes
0: absolutely <laughs> Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Mate, speaking of identifying a problem, good old Telstra and the NBN are at loggerheads this week in a really, really fascinating, oh well, it's for me anyway, fascinating tussle about how much the NBN should be charging for access to broadband. And it's one of those stories where, again, there's so many different moving parts here. Uh, Telstra, Andy Penn, the CEO of Telstra, coming out pretty strongly against the NBN. And I can't help but think this is a new strategy post-election. In, a, in one version of the world, uh, Labor won the last election. The, they decide to blame the Liberal Party or the coalition for uh, spending too much on the NBN. They do a big write-down, blame the old guys. The prices come down. NBN charges a lower fee. And Andy Penn goes, oh, I'll wait for that and see if it happens. Fast forward to July, now August, of course, but fast forward to late July, and Penn kind of goes, well, (laughs) it doesn't seem like the current government, i.e. the the, the pre-existing government in a a new term, is going to take that right down because they kind of politically can't. So I need to take the fight now in a public forum to the NBN to try and somehow convince the government or the NBN or both – to find either find a different way to get raise revenue, i.e. the old Netflix tax has been talked about, or simply just to write down the value of the of the network so that it can at least charge a little bit less. That's good for Telstra because more people in theory will take up the NBN. Maybe they'll take up better plans. Maybe they'll end up with more data. It's a really interesting conversation, and there's so much here. There's 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 social policy, there's tax policy, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. It, it, I guess the question is what? How do you see the NBN story rolling out, and what does it mean for Telstra and the other telcos?
2: So, I, I mean, so NBN is like basically the wholesaler selling the, you know, essentially the last mile to all the telcos, right? Right. right. So you've got one guy basically setting the rates, and then yep. everybody else basically got to make, you know, small money on top of that.
1: And those rates are set and- by the NBN, by the way, as a, positive return on the investment that's been made based on some sort of carrying book value. So they're kind of obliged. I don't know if they're obliged by regulation or just by government pressure, but either way, it's kind of the same thing to say, well, we spent X dollars on it. That means we have to charge Y dollars a month to make our money back. That's pretty much how they've set those rates. If they could reduce the carrying value of those assets, they could charge less and still deliver to the government and to the regulation kind of what was what they're obliged to do, right? Yeah,
2: and also I think that it depends on what payback period they're assuming. I think right, they right. assume like a 10-year payback period, which yep. is pretty aggressive. You can just assume a 50-year payback period. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, think about for,
1: for, for some cable, that, I mean, some of the copper lines on the ground for Telstra have been in place for 60, 70 years. Yeah, which it's is, hard to believe that the NBN needs a 10-year payback. Yeah,
2: which is exactly, which is, that's why I'm bringing that up, right? right, right. You know, the, why not just assume a longer-term payback, yeah, right? right. Um, it, that gives me to think that, you know, NBN Co., probably thinks that this thing either has to pay back in 10 years or it is actually worthless.
1: (laughs) Either that or maybe the the cynic thinks that they're trying to sell, the NBN is going to be privatized at some point. And to do that, they have to to, have kind of amortized most of those costs before they can sell it off. Right. Right.
2: Yeah. So if you're going to list it as a, as a, as a a a private sale or something uh, else, or or something like that as a public company, um, uh, and then maybe allow other people to compete with it and things like that and change the regulations around it. Yeah. So it could be any of those things or maybe a combination of everything. Um, uh, I am actually not certain whether NBN is actually helping our okay. uh, our telco sector in any way. Like, I mean, all of them basically are under... It, you talk to any and all public companies in mm-hmm. sort of in a utilit- u- utility or utilitarian space will mm-hmm. complain
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> about that we are not making money. <laughs> that's so, right. so that's a given. We want to get more return. Uh, exactly.
2: Everybody wants more money for yep, their shareholders. Right, yep. um, and and, and, <laughs> and N- NBN Co, I get it, has a responsibility towards the government which right. has put the money in. Are, actually,
1: which, companies make a plan at energy prices, gas prices, electricity yeah. prices, so, water uh, prices. Yeah. yeah, true. And,
2: and the government has a responsibility <laughs> towards the taxpayers because it's their money, right? It's, right, it's our right, money that's right. being invested. So, so I get all that relation. But it, it is really hard in 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 the in the telco space and the broadband space to actually for anybody of those any of those guys to actually make any money and grow and um, you know have a decent business so I think they they, they kind of have uh, have a problem there right the the other I think what Andy Penn says and I, th- I agree with that part is if it continues along this path mm. like uh, we can't get like we can get 100 megabit connections at home at best i actually can't get more than for example 40
1: megabits Yeah, i think 40 is the most i've ever got too
2: yeah because and that's because because mine is up to the curb and then i've yep. got some that's right you know really crappy old copper <laughs> which is like 200 <laughs> years old uh you, you know right, uh, right, right. <laughs> uh was uh <laughs> so, so i can't get any more than that that's right
1: um uh, and they're getting, they're getting kind of 10 times or maybe 20 times that speed in South Korea and other places, right? Exactly. Okay. So the, the thing is that if
2: the 5G thing rolls out, which, mm. you know, and, and Telstra, for example, is investing in it and other companies are investing in it, right? And I'd assume some of the others, like Vodafone, Optus and so mm-hmm. on, would also do it. If that's the case, we might actually get faster internet mm. from uh, from mobile. Mm. And why wouldn't I then bundle all my mobile together into Mm -hmm. one offering, right? You know, why should I, you know, even bother of having like, you know, like like I have TPG internet, but I've got Vodafone as my mobile product. If, you know, Vodafone gives me that, Mm. I'll probably take it. So, I mean, he he has a point there that if you can get higher, faster speeds uh, from mobile, this this thing, this whole thing could be a white elephant. Mm. (laughs) So it's a hard one isn't it yeah it's a tough one and yeah i can sympathize with telstra although you know it seems like i'm sympathizing with telstra which is not really what i do, <laughs> what i want to do about time about time doc it's it's something that i don't want to do but you know in this case i think he has a, he has got a few valid points
1: <laughs> plus we all like to have cheaper internet that'd be nice
2: i, I want faster internet
1: too. oh okay i'd enough. pay a
2: little bit more but i want faster oh there you go i okay. can't pay more and get faster yeah you know, this is like very until, frustrating until 5g I'm waiting to pay more to get faster, but I can't.
1: <laughs> Please let me pay you more money. I
2: want to pay you more money so that I can get the 8K video, I You hear I can't. that,
1: Andy Pen? Doc, will sign up with Telstra if you give your 8K video. Yeah, there we go. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, yeah, Gar- Cast iron guarantee? Well, you know, unless, you know, Vodafone gives me the 8K <laughs> for cheap, but I'll take Vodafone. But yeah. Lock it in. Uh, I, I will drop NBN.
0: Lock it in. <laughs> Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Speaking of uh, so Andy Pen and Telstra and... All Good Things Investing, as I'm a Telstra shareholder for the record. Um, Today is August 2nd, as we record this, the second day of August, the second day of, air quotes, earnings season. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every ASX, we say this semi-regularly, but for those who are newer to the podcast, every company in the ASX has to report their earnings at least six monthly, and that has to come out by the end of the second month after the end of your financial period. Now, most Australian, companies, not all, you're not obliged to, most Australian companies have a financial year that mirrors our tax year. That is July 1 to June thirty. Fast forward two months, the results must come out by August 30, 30, 31, 31. Um, Now, in doing that, you kind of, no one repeats (laughs) releases in July because it just takes a very, very long time. If you're a large public company to get your results ready, you can do it, but no one does. So August ends up being the month. Now, mate, interesting story because we now have a ASX at all-time highs. Mm -hmm. That would suggest some degree of optimism by investors. Mm -hmm. This earnings season probably... I mean, they're all important, right? They're all, they're all, they're all, they're all necessary, and and they all have impacts on share prices. But I can't help but think, when you're at kind of market highs, the risks kind of get elevated a little bit around volatility and market prices, right? There's a lot expected mm. by investors. If Australia's public companies deliver, then we're all well and good. Mm-hmm. If they over deliver, then maybe share prices can go higher. But when they're already at records, the kind of upside potential, at least on this very particular mm. rationale, is a little bit more limited. Mm. How are you seeing the potential for earnings season in the next month or so?
2: Oh, so tough question. So for for like for, um, extreme opportunities, one of the advantages or disadvantages, whatever yeah, you want. Extreme are,
1: opportunities is the, one of the monthly services you run? Yeah.
2: And so this is the our uh, small cap, sort of small cap focused, higher risk, higher reward type of service. Quick ad. Um, because we have a lot of the smaller caps, mm-hmm. we get to see what's called four Cs, which are the quarterly reports. Right. Uh, a lot of our quarterly reports have come in.
1: So small companies under a certain size, and I think under a certain amount of cash or profit, are obliged under ASX listing rules to report. Their cash quarterly, not necessarily the full balance sheet and PL. They have to at least release their cash flow statements quarterly. Say, hey, we we kind of, you know, we're small and we're we're a bit riskier. So we have to tell you everything this every three months because if we waited six months, it might might be either great or terrible. Um, So the 4C is the name of the report you'll see on the ASX announcement. So you're right, Doc. Some, many, maybe most of the extreme yeah, opportunities so, so they're, have they're
2: supposed to report by i think 31st of July right yeah, so that's the,
1: one month later that's right
2: yeah so that that's uh, that's done mm. most of the reports are actually pretty good which okay. is uh, which is which is good the other thing i'll say about this earning season is that um Strange enough, there haven't been, you know, we were in confession season before that, right? So Mm -hmm. if most companies would have unaudited results, right? Uh, So the June 30th, the half year finished. And then, you know, by the middle of July, Mm -hmm. companies would have a decent idea of where they are.
1: Yeah. So confession season tends to run from about the last month of the financial year. So at some point in June, companies start to realize, oops, Mm. maybe we're not going to hit the numbers we thought. And then you get towards the end of June, other companies go, well, we kind of pushed it to the end because we hope we might sign some. Contracts, but oops, and then some in early July kind of get the final numbers and go, ah, oh, bugger. Yeah, you know, either either for financial or accounting or other reasons, things aren't going to be great. by the, By mid July, though, as you say, that kind of news is already in at corporate headquarters. They should know that by now, and so any confessions they need to they need to release to say, oh, guys, this wasn't you know as good as we hoped. That exactly. should be passed
2: exactly. So, so there weren't that many confessions this time, okay. which which basically tells me that at least most of these companies are thinking that they're going to meet their own guidance. So, I think the I think the results I would expect are going to be around what if companies give guidance, which basically they said that this is what we we like we think we are going to do. Mm-hmm. I think many of them are actually going to hit it. If they haven't already downgraded, right? I mm-hmm. mean, un- unless they're really being stupid and holding on to those bad results, which you know, b- because of continuous disclosure, they wouldn't. So, I mean, my 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 best guess is that we're going to see results that are going to match or meet expectations, and maybe even beat their expectations, right? the uh, The thing that's I think going to decide where the market goes next, cause, you know, and then we're talking about short term, so I'm taking a short term guess here. It's going to be all based on what the next guidance is going to be, right? right, right. And because, we, as as you pointed out i mean the market is at all time high many stocks are at all time high you know are they going to be able to live up to that expectation given what they're going to tell us about what you know what what they have done in uh, since the quarter has closed or since the half has closed Mm. and how are they looking at the world right now and what they think their future prospects are i think that you know these again the market is a forward-looking venture
1: (laughs) i put you as cautiously optimistic then
2: I am yeah I'm, I'm yeah I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm cautiously yeah, that's a good way. I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm actually not very bearish. I would I would have you know I'm actually surprised that I'm not bearish in the sense that <laughs> given, given the market has gone up so much yeah right I, I would have thought that there going to be some disappointments but we haven't had those, those mm-hmm. many disappointments so you know maybe things are good even house prices have stabilized
1: you're a happy uh, man these days.
2: No, well, not about that. But <laughs> that I think is a big problem. But anyways.
1: <laughs> I, I will say for what it's worth, I actually agree with all of that. The only overlay I'll, I'll add is that because the Australian market—we've said this before—is so dominated by the big, the biggest twelve companies make up. Fifty percent of the market cap of the index, from memory, something like that. Mm. And so, realistically, the other hundred and eighty-eight companies could do well. And if those doesn't do badly, or or just even uh, mediocrely, mm. we may still, may yet see the index fall. And that's probably why we'd always say, as a, as a as a as a company, as a house, as a group, um, the. The real challenge, I think, is just to be able to look at the market, in air quotes, differently to the stocks you own. And so I don't know that you I necessarily have a strong view either way on, say, the banks or the miners, for example. They may well have a terrible or a wonderful earning season. Um, that shouldn't directly impact or even even indirectly impact on the performances and the futures of some of the other companies on the ASX.
2: I totally agree. Yeah. When I when I, when I was talking about the market, I was not at all talking about these banks. And I, you know, right, right, right. those should be under pressure. <laughs> <laughs> They're meant to be under pressure is what I think.
0: <laughs> mm. But anyways, yeah. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple
1: M. I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast the 100 200 billion dollar problems as in not one 200 billion dollar one but two lots like, of
2: I would like to have that problem. It would
1: be a lovely problem, wouldn't it? it would be a great problem so to Imagine have. you're a company with 100 billion big ones mm. burning a hole in your pocket. This is the problem that faced both Amazon and sorry Amazon, jeez, Alphabet, Google's parent company and Apple two of the biggest companies in the world, two of the most dominant tech companies in the world. It's an interesting challenge to, I think, understand what's going on there. I mean, Mm -hmm. I said, nice (laughs) problem to have you. You're exactly right. Mm. On the flip side, though, at some point, too much cash ends up actually hurting your investment returns, particularly as we've already talked about in the world Mm. where interest rates are really, really, really low. I mean, it's kind of nice to have that cash, but as an investor, if you had $100 billion in the back pocket, and you wanted to get a ten percent return on that, mm. you wouldn't have it in cash. Now, no. again, nice problem to have. You could afford to make a two percent return mm. on hundred billion dollars, you'd be okay. You'd, you'd probably you'd be able to pay the bills. Mm. But for those two companies attempting to, I, I've said in the past about Apple, and I'll say about Alphabet. I, you own Apple. I own Alphabet. Do mm-hmm. you own Alphabet shares? I use Chase to hold them. There you go. So between between the both of us, we own those two companies. Yet there's, there's just some sense to my mind of this about Apple, as I said. <sighs> flexibility, optionality, mm. they're all wonderful things. Buffett, of course, has $100 billion in cash too. In Berkshire Hathaway, that's three companies, $300 bucks, roughly mm. among friends. <laughs> I can't help but think there's some pretty lazy balance sheets out there. Surely, yeah, you want some cash. Yeah, you want to kind of have some optionality, some mm. flexibility. But Apple and, and, and Alphabet aren't going to struggle to raise debt if they wanted to, for example. Mm. Aren't they Mis-serving, underserving, not serving shareholders by having so much cash earning such little in terms of returns?
2: Right. So that's a good question. So there's a little bit of a history here. A lot of the cash these companies have or had was held overseas. And the U.S. had some strange laws which basically said that, you know, if you bring that cash back from overseas to U.S., uh, effectively, even if the f- cash was actually physically in the U.S., but it was somehow held, you know, in mm. some overseas entity, you would pay a substantial tax on it. Would they changed that, and since then, a lot of these companies have started bringing the capital effectively, at least on a, from a taxation point of view, back into the U.S. Um, so that has changed. Uh, like, for example, Alphabet recently announced a buyback, which was hey. for the first time, $25 billion I, I believe is, is the buyback. So uh, part of the reason I think the cash was there in the, in the balance sheet and was burning a hole was just tax, and they needed I guess that at some point they're going to win and the tax laws are going to say that well, you know You can bring the cash back. Mm, mm. So That's number
1: one. That's right. Um, that feels like an issue, doesn't it? but but yeah, that's that's
2: actually so so to put some you know a finer point on that like I mean what Apple basically did It started its buyback program basically by borrowing Mm. money. Mm. So Apple has got like what hundred billion dollars of debt Mm. Um, It's still net cash hundred billion dollars, but it basically had that has the debt because it used debt to buy Mm. back Mm. shares Mm. is it is it is it a, is it a good problem? I mean, it's a great problem in some sense, right? I mean, think of this company. I, I you know, as I said, I've, I've sold Google, but I, I yeah, own Apple. Yeah. Um, Apple generates fifty billion dollars of free cash flow, give or take a little bit, <laughs> every. That's a
1: astonishing amount of money. Every isn't it? year, wow! Right? You can wow. buy
2: back five percent of the company.
1: That's phenomenal.
2: Um, roughly,
1: hmm. every year. I would argue though that buybacks at these kind of prices, neither Apple nor Alphabet are particularly cheap. I mean, not expensive. I'm not arguing that they're horribly overvalued, but I, I just I kind of can't. I can't really work out whether buying back those shares is the best use of capital at like the current price or whether they should be paying a special dividend or or something else. Is a buyback really the best use of that cash?
2: Yeah, so Alphabet probably is not cheap, but Apple is very cheap in my, <laughs> in my view like you know, uh, which is why I own uh, Apple and not Alphabet. Um, yeah, like I mean I mean if you if you think about yeah, you buying a company that generates $50 billion of free cash flow mm. uh, that has got $100 billion of cash on the balance sheet which can buy 10% of the company, that's on a some sort of forward multiple of what, like 15 times? That's cheaper than Woolworths.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm not saying sure it's not cheaper than Woolworths. It's just stupidly expensive. I just, yeah. But even still on that level, like is that is that where you would say, if you, if you had to spend $100 million, is that the best place for Apple to use that cash? Well, I think compared so. Compared to I- giving it out to you, you could earn more, you would you would say with your investing prowess, if they gave you the, the money, the, the relative, so let's say Alphabet because it's 5% of the share. Or Apple, so yeah. Apple used to say it was 5%. So they'd, they're buying back 5% of the share. If they gave you back 5% of your purchase price every year and let you use it somewhere... I don't reckon you would use it all to buy Apple shares. I reckon you'd find better ideas elsewhere. And that In that environment, a special dividend is worth more to you than a buyback.
2: Yeah. So I think the dichotomy is that you know, if if I have to generate more than 15% return, for example, per mm. year, I shouldn't be owning Apple, right? I, I,
1: right, right. <laughs> right. But, but that's, that's kind of what Apple's kind of obliging you to do by buying back the shares, no, by keeping the cash themselves and making that decision rather than uh, giving it to you to make your I, decision. I,
2: that's true. But I think I yeah, I think the reason you own if you're owning Apple, you basically own it as like a ballast in your portfolio and right. you accept that it's gonna get give you lower returns than what you could get mm, elsewhere. Mm, mm. Uh, and that's all. It's fine. And the way Apple is basically delivering you that return partly comes from the fact that it's going to just buy back it shares, its shares. The share count is shrinking mm. rapidly. Yeah. Um, and if its share count is shrinking rapidly, so the couple again, the thing with Apple is the, Apple is a company in transition. It's been a company in transition over the last several years because it's basically it's getting off the iPhone, yeah. um, you know, binge to basically becoming more of a wearable services type of company, right? So if you if you look at you know the huge R and D spend that's happening beneath the um, the bonnet, mm. then you know, there's lots of growth in other areas that's going to happen over time, right? Which is going to be in wearables and services, probably even in things like healthcare. You see early indications of that in, say, mm. the Apple Watch with um, the the ECG capabilities. So, uh, eventually, when the growth starts, you know, when you when you have you know rapid growth coming back in high margin dollars, I think mm. you're going to be very happy that they actually bought back shares at these levels, right? If you if you if that's the story you believe in, then I think they're doing the right thing. Um, Yeah. So, uh, yeah. uh, Whether a special dividend is like $22 per share, you know, whether they should pay me $22 (laughs) per share back. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's I'm actually fine with their capital management strategy. I think, you know, it's it it keeps being the market for me um, over at least the long term. And, and I think it has a special, it has a, it's a particular function. I, I'm not looking at it as a, you know, quadruple bagger <laughs> stock, for that I have other things that I would own, um, mm. much smaller companies, um, uh, not not Apple, or yeah. you know. And again, anybody who, who owns Google or Facebook or any other of those companies, mm. basically, you know, large size companies, you just can't expect, they're not gonna 10 bag, right? Mm. I mean, even over 10 years, they're not gonna like 10 bag or even five bag probably, right, so.
1: Arguably, they you keep the cash. I'll we'll give it
2: back to you. Um, i they're giving it back to me, so <laughs> Apple is giving it back to me via Bio share buybacks. buybacks. Right. So it, so I'm, it ends I'm, up with you having yeah. a
1: larger share of a smaller pie. Exactly,
2: and and, pie, yeah, and 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 some dividends. So the dividends are also increasing That's every true. every true. year. The yep. dividend increases. Um, I, I'm happy with that strategy. It also gives them some flexibility in terms of mm. you know buying stuff. They 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 just bought the Intel's, for example, modem business for like a billion. They make like a billion dollars or two mm-hmm. billion dollars of purchase. That's pocket change. It's pocket
1: change. Um, <laughs> it's pocket change. Could they, maybe <laughs> they could buy something else.
2: I much prefer they're not buy something else but yeah. you know that's the flexibility is there but I, I like the strategy of what they're doing uh, it, it's it's as long as the shares are at like this sort of 15 16 17 mm. multiple i think they're i think that they would it would be really good in my opinion you know fair enough on on balance for them i don't get google's <laughs> buyback but i get apple's buyback
1: i think so. i think both of them are are shareholder unfriendly. I love buybacks when they're made at attractive prices. I don't think either can be considered an attractive price relative to other opportunities that either the companies have to reinvest that money in growth, or you or I have opportunities as investors to go and do that. I think at some level, you want to be buying back shares only when they're cheap enough, i.e. when they're at the level where we ourselves would be buying those shares. If if they're cheap enough for me to buy Google shares, then Google buying back their own shares makes perfect sense. If I'm not prepared to buy them at the current price, then Google shouldn't be buying them at the current price either. They're simply just not cheap enough to be that To have that be the best use of their capital, I would personally argue the same for Apple. Um, Different levels of valuation, I agree with you. I think Apple's statistically cheaper than than Google, Um, but I think as a business, they both have better uses of the cash. I think the buyback fever that's got corporate America, the buyback's... The, the academic research is really, really clear. Companies do terribly when it comes to buybacks. They buy back at prices that are too high. They issue shares at prices that are too low. It is just an absolute dog's breakfast buybacks in the US. And I fear that both Apple and, Amazon, and Alphabet, I keep saying Amazon, Apple and Alphabet are both falling into that same trap.
2: I'll just say the Alphabet is in that trap because I've sold the shares because they were expensive. <laughs> but Apple I own, and I would actually happily say that anybody who doesn't own it can buy it at these prices. So Apple is undervalued. Apple is doing the right thing. That's my point.
1: Stand by.
0: Value stock. Market. Stock market. Index. Of. Share market. This is Modley Fool Money.
1: Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au
0: forward slash triple M.
1: Mate, let's get into the full mailbag, our favourite segment, and judging by the correspondence we get, pretty popular amongst our listeners too. If that's you, fantastic, thank you. If it's not you, our apologies. Or send us a different question, give us a chance to answer your question, and make it even more interesting for even more interesting than it is, which is hard to believe, I know, but even more interesting for you in terms of answering your question. Mate, the first one this week comes from Curly. Now, Curly says, "G'day, Doc and Scott. Have you heard of reduced home loans? And if so, what do you think?" Apparently, they track the bank bill swap rate, not the RBA base rate. What does this mean? And is there a risk their rate will go up out of sync with the rest of the lenders? We've already had our offer accepted, so sorting finance quickly is important. It's a very full-on time for us. I love that, Curly. Thank you. Um, so reduced Home Loans, one of many, many lenders, most similar to the likes of the old school Rams and Wizard back in the day where they would securitize, to use that term. It was a kind of a dirty word during the GFC. They borrow money from somebody else. They make a little bit of margin on it, and then they get you to sign up with their, their loan product. They make a little bit of cash on the way through. And the, the borrowing costs for the individual borrowers are basically tied to, either directly or indirectly, the bank bill swap rate. In other words, the rate that banks lend to each other. That's kind of how they make that decision because that's the price they're securitizing at. Now, on one level, that's kind of exactly what Rams and Wizard did. On the other hand, <laughs> fast forward 10 or 12 years since the bottom of the GFC, and you start to think, is this kind of you know troubled waters again? Are we, are we getting ourselves into trouble? Do you have a view, Doc?
2: Um... <laughs> I don't know. Like, I I actually never heard of this um, reduce home loan things. Mm. I mean, uh, I mean, it's an interesting concept to be you know by basically lending at you know slightly above the bank bill swap rate, which is going to be above the RBA rate, but it's probably going Mm -hmm. to be below some other rate. Um, I don't have a view. Like, I mean, there are there are a lot of non bank lenders that have really great rates that you can get, and you know now is a great time to get great rates all around. So I, I basically think if you have a good rate. Um, and you can get a better rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, basically they're lending you money against your property. So I guess, um, that's, that's fine. I wouldn't, uh, there's some consideration in terms of if you're keeping, I guess, cash, uh, in an offset account and if they offer an offset account, Mm -hmm. is that account covered by deposit guarantee? Mm -hmm. I... Don't know if it's a non-bank lender. What happens? Um the Bank lenders, I believe that it's covered by up to the limit of the govern of the government limit, which mm-hmm. is what two hundred
1: thousand yep. dollars. I think Uh two fifty or anyway, two fifty something. A lot, like a lot that. of money. <laughs> a lot of money. If you have that so, much money, you probably know.
2: Yeah. So whatever it is, I mean, yeah. basically at, at that level, it's covered. So so that's the, maybe the only consideration. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, yeah, hey, good rate. I mean, this now is a great time to get good rates. That Isn't that's it? the only thing I can say.
1: Yeah, mate, I I agree, curly. I think. It's it's worth – so there's a couple of things here. I think the reality is Rams and Wizard both had trouble during the GFC, but their borrowers didn't have any trouble because effectively it was the organisation that was in trouble, not the, not the security. Now, we all know with any financial institution, you, your mortgage could actually be called at a reasonably short notice with any any organisation, including the big banks, by the way. So there's always that risk, so I, I'd put that out there. The other thing is that – when I first saw your question, I thought, oh, this is going to be a bit, a bit dodgy. I better dig into this one. Certainly, if you have a long enough memory, you might remember way back in the day, banks were offering mortgages that were securitized or secured in other currencies. Doc, I don't know if you remember this, but uh-uh. um, there was a big story in some of the current affairs television programs back when current affairs TV was a little more serious than it is today. Um, and there were people, I think they borrowed in Swiss francs from memory. And so what happened was the loan was payable, but of course the currency moved and all of a sudden they had to pay back many more Australian dollars. To have the same number of Swiss francs, and that that uh, took some people to maybe even over the edge of bankruptcy. Curly, in this case, effectively think about the bank bill swap rate as the bank's average cost of funding anyway. So, to some degree, you know the, the average cost of any bank's funding. Like Commonwealth Bank, for example, is a combination of the deposit rates they're paying you and me for our cash in the bank, the money they're borrowing from local. Uh, lenders effectively, so people who are giving their money to to lend out, and the money they're securing on wholesale markets overseas. So, local wholesale, overseas wholesale, and local retail deposits. That is effectively what makes up the bank bill swap rate, almost by definition, because the combination of that is the bank's average funding cost. So, if you're borrowing from Commonwealth or ANZ or Westpac, don't expect that to be materially different in terms of the cost of the provider. In other words, CBA compared to the cost of reduced home loans. They're effectively doing the same thing. They're just acting as an intermediary, effectively a broker of sorts between the bank and you. So if you were to, again, take the Commonwealth Bank example, if I was to start you know, Scott and Doc Home Loans and we borrowed money from the Commonwealth Bank and then lent it to you, we'd just be acting as an intermediary between the two. Um, that will give us a better rate because they don't have to do the, the mortgage origination themselves, Then, but you're not having a relationship directly with CBA. You're dealing with us as the intermediary. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. To your point about the, the movement, yes, it's more likely to be more volatile, the, the interest rate, but in both directions, by the way. If they're holding a, a relatively constant margin on the bank bill swap rate, banks will normally eat uh, some some margin at some times and also grab some extra margin other times. If the bank bill swap rate drops markedly, Commonwealth banks are going to rush out to drop your home loan. They're going to make some more profit. On the flip side, if it goes up, they're probably not going to rush to increase it either. Because they're not, they're going to realise the political realities of making a movement like that in a a very complex and um, emotionally charged home loan market, given the politics around the Royal Commission and stuff. So, overall, though, the bank's going to want to make roughly over time the same sort of margin on top of the bank bill swap rate. In other words, on top of their consider it their wholesale cost. Uh, All of that said, really long and probably relatively boring explanation. Uh, Bottom line is, there's no reason to believe that you will get a better uh, or worse rate from these guys over time on average. But you would imagine, I would imagine, it'll probably more, be more volatile than the average bank interest rate. doesn't necessarily it mean it's bad because it'll probably go both ways, but just be a little bit mindful that you probably will see more volatility, but you shouldn't, all things being equal, end up with a worse outcome uh, from a securitized non-bank lender like Reduce. And I can't speak for what they will do in future, of course, uh, but there's no reason why that should be materially worse or deleterious output outcome, sorry, compared to doing it directly with a bank.
0: Modly for money.
1: My next one's from Sam. Sam said, good morning, Captain and Doc. That's very kind, Sam. I'm loving the podcast. The equal mix of banter and share advice is perfect, and you both do a marvellous job. I'd love to think Sam said that, not just get his question on the podcast, Doc, but I'm not entirely oh, sure. He said, I'm doing a marvellous job, too. <laughs> I'm just, you know. So we're taking the praise? We're not questioning it?
2: Yeah. So it must be fair praise.
1: Never let it be said. We, we demand and require no. praise to have your question answered, but uh, it helps. It helps. It helps. It helps. Yes. <laughs> Sam says, "I had a question regarding a stock I do slash did question mark own hmm. told us something. The stock was called Enviro Mission, and back in May it was removed from the ASX since air quotes. It has been oh actually real quotes. It has been unable to meet the requirements for reporting on the ASX. Oh dear, I was wondering what generally happens from here." And if you have seen this happen much. If so, do the companies have much of a chance to grow off the ASX and then relist, or is the stock basically dead in the water? Thanks again for all your assistance and advice. Rock on and full on. How good's that? Rock on. That is awesome. Full on. Sam I don't have much good news. Do you have any good news for Sam before I destroy his dreams? <laughs> I was going to say
2: dreams? that um, the chances that it's going to come back and you're going to get anything <laughs> out of it is next uh, to negligible. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, technically, he's a shareholder in that company. I mean, he has shares in that company and the question is, the sh- are the shares worth anything?
1: Now, are we talking about the company specifically or just these sort of scenario generally? Well, I'm do you just know the saying,
2: company? I don't know the company. Okay, but right. I'm just saying in, in this scenario, I mean, yep. you still hold the share in that company. Correct. It's not that Correct. you don't own the share, you do. But that the shares and the, share, the value of that company is probably worth
1: not much and it's hard to get someone to buy your shares without a recognized market like I, the ASX in between
2: yeah maybe maybe the founders or whoever owned the business or maybe the majority <laughs> holder is going to be willing to you know uh buy them but you it's it. unlikely yep. um can it relist yeah, well, you know the ASX will never say no that you can't relist <laughs> if you cuz they get money for it well they get money for it and you know yep. it's great for the market there are yep. more companies on the market but they have to meet the minimum mm-hmm. listing requirements yeah yep. um and if they can't and if there were, I mean, any company that failed to meet the listing, or they listed and then they failed to meet the listing, I mean, the mm. chances, what are the chances that they're going to, you know, the odds are pretty low.
1: Yeah. So we need to separate here when we're specifically not talking about environment mission just for the absolute record for anyone listening who's uh, an environment mission lawyer or somebody else. Yeah, I have um, no idea. What we, are, we are clearly not talking about environment mission at all. The reality, Sam, as Doc's already alluded to, is if a company is delisted from the ASX, it's normally for 2 one of two reasons. One is that they haven't well, three. One is they haven't paid the fees <laughs> up front. If you don't pay the fees, you don't get listed um, or you can't remain listed. Second is you may have failed to meet the requi- the reporting requirements. So if a company doesn't, for example, lodge its reports on time, the ASX will normally suspend its shares. Um, or lastly, if it doesn't meet certain listing requirements like liquidity requirements, so a certain number of shares traded or certain value of a company, the ASX will simply decide the company is not worth having remaining on the, on the ASX, on the big board. So at some level, any of those criteria, as Doc kind of mentions, if you are listed and let yourself be taken off, um, that's probably because you can't avoid it, and that generally is not a good sign because no company is going to willingly you know, have their shares un- unlisted, delisted, suspended, call it what you want. Um, so there's probably some work to be done by a, a company in that situation. Honestly, mate, very, very, very rare. If you have a meaningful delisting for any meaningful amount of time, very, very rare for it to come back to the boards. It does happen. It can happen. We saw a couple of companies. There's one that was off for a couple of months, I think, and came back eventually. Um, yeah, suspended companies come back. So right, I've seen a right. number
2: of suspended companies that have been suspended for a couple of weeks, even right, three right. weeks. That, you know, um, Normally
1: when they get their act together, they've yeah. kind of got to get some financials restated or something. It just takes too long to yeah. do it. And yeah. they can't do it DSX. The, the famous example of
2: recent times I can think of suspended was um, the shares of Bellamy's were suspended for a good oh, little that's while.
1: That's what I was right? thinking of. You're right. It was a couple yeah. of months. It was, it was. I'm was not it? sure. The December, it, January?
2: It, it was one, at least a month or so. I mean, something substantial. Okay. Um, But it did come back, right? I mean, it came back at a low share price. It then went up to a very high share price. Oh, no, But it's still, I think, double of whatever it was at at its low. Right. So it does happen if it got suspended. But I think... I sort of distinguish between suspension because I've seen a number of suspensions and suspensions can even happen if you fail to actually lodge you uh, lodge your report by the last date. Right. Okay. You can actually be suspended.
1: Yep. yep correct. Um normally and, for a day or so until I get there right Well, together. like,
2: you know, like yeah, maybe a couple of days because sometimes you know you have companies which are foreign foreign companies which list on the ASX mm-hmm. and then they just don't realize what the rules are. They should have people, you know, and then they f- forget to, you know, this is, almost happens sometimes after actually <laughs> IPO um and, and and then they get into trouble and they could get suspended. But yeah. Uh, suspension to real to non-suspension mm. um, or trading does happen. I've seen that. Yeah. Um, sometimes it can happen successfully for investors, like Bellamy's is a good a good good example. But this is very I haven't actually seen mm. this
1: sort the of thing. The odds aren't good, Sam. I, yeah. I can't speak about that company in general. So maybe no the odds are great for company. environment. Uh generally speaking they're not good in that circumstance. As Doxy, you do own the shares and, and to some degree if they're never listed again, they'll be. Uh, it could be a public company not listed, in which case you do own those shares and you're trying to try and get out of them somehow, sell them back to the founders or someone else. That's all possible, just unlikely. Um, the company is your best resource in terms of the information coming from that. If there is something else going on, often you will also see class actions or something else happen. So keep your eye out for that. You may be able to get a small amount back. For all intents and purposes, mate, the bad news is you probably need to consider it largely, if not entirely, lost. Yeah. Last one, Doc, for today comes from Blurb Man. I love <laughs> it. not that good, Blurbman. Yeah, Man? That's an awesome name. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. I hope the trek to Birdsville is going well. It was. This was a couple of weeks ago, so thank you, Blurb Man. I came back safe and sound. I had an absolute ball, as I said, last week. Hardly recommend it to anybody. Question for the pod. Is there any way for an investor to invest in startups prior to listing, pre-IPO? Obviously, not, not all of us have the funds to be an angel investor, but can see the potential in companies. Do we simply need to await the listing and be, be in good with the broker to get an allocation? Doc, one for you. If you want to get into yes. a company pre-IPO, is it possible? Can you do it? What's going on?
2: Okay, so it's possible um, in various ways. Mm. Um, so I haven't seen this uh, here in, in Australia, mm. but I've seen it uh, in Accessible in America, they changed some rules, Mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise, pre-IPO is basically regarded as as more risky, right? Because there's less information out there, so therefore, um, the Securities um, Commission there had some rules around who can invest, who couldn't invest, and it Mm -hmm. was initially only restricted to what is called sophisticated investors. They've lightened those rules, and there are there are these places where you can invest, actually. So there's uh, Seed Invest, for example, mm-hmm. a place where you can find deals and you can you can sign up on those deals. Um,
1: yeah. Fair to say a little bit, though, if a company is offering the general public pre-IPO access... The highest quality companies have already got plenty of cash from angel investors, right? There is some sense that yes, it's kind of you know the old Groucho Marx line of I don't want to be a member of any club that'll let me in. If if someone's saying hey we'll offer shares to the public, yeah we, we're good guys. Yes, for the most part you kind of got to think it's the reverse where well Google's got enough venture capital cash and Tesla's got enough venture capital cash and uh, Beyond Meat's got enough venture capital cash, but gee, Scott incorporated over here that's making you know uh, bamboo serviettes. You know, is happily taking someone else's money from the general public. Is there a sense that maybe the ones that actually want your money are ones you don't want to invest in?
2: Uh, yeah some of these places would take care credit card for for <laughs> your funding so um <laughs> so t- uh, yeah so I know of these places I have yep. myself never actually invested in where well, I've read some deals yeah it's incredibly hard to actually make sense <laughs> of them uh, like it isn't like it's not that these people are not honest or anything I'm not mm. saying anything like that what I, what I mean is just the information is that the terms and conditions sometimes are really really mm-hmm. um, difficult and you know they're like different preferential shares yeah. and you know different ordering of shares uh, classes of shares and so on so it's yeah
1: it's be careful as the message be careful is the message, is the message. Um, here in australia there's really unless you i mean pre-ipo is almost impossible and even at the ipo you've kind of got to be a preferred client of a broker or an investment bank right
2: you can always apply like i mean different brokers would allow you to apply for mm-hmm. pre ipo or look ipo shares yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, i don't know how many people actually get any allocation again there too like you know what you you have at least there you've read their prospectus mm-hmm. but you've not seen any financials other than the financials that are there so yeah. there's some risk there too right i so, I mean, um, like uh, my general advice to most people is unless you're a sophisticated investor, then you're best to stick with the public market, with the public information and with well-researched companies. You really don't need to venture into the pre-IPO land. When you're a sophisticated investor, maybe... You want to, and maybe you can, and maybe probably still shouldn't. <laughs> to yeah, be fair. Like, I, like I mean, if you're supposed to get invested, the basic assumption sure you've got you've got plenty of money. I mean, if you've got plenty of money, maybe you you want to put some money. It's
1: like plenty of money you know, to lose.
2: <laughs> well, you like, maybe you like maybe you like the thrill of you know playing oh. the roulette uh, or rolling the dice, right? I, I don't know. I like you know I don't I want to make decisions yes. for other people, <laughs> but for most people, I think sticking to public information makes sense to
1: me. Be very careful. That's great advice, man. A great way to finish this podcast. But before we wrap up. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, give us some stars, give us a rating, give us a review, tell your friends, write our name in big skywriting letters across the capital city in your state.
2: That's pushing it. You reckon? Yeah, just you know, just give us praise. So close your eyes,
1: Motley Fool Money in white writing across the beautiful blue sky of Adelaide or Perth or Darwin.
2: Yeah, you want them to fly their planes with like a poster on it. Right?
1: Yeah, or skywrite, you know, like with the smoke.
2: I'll take the praise on the on on Twitter. All right,
1: use Twitter. Uh, you can hit us up <laughs> at the Motley Fool AU at Anirvan Mahanti or at TMF Scott P. Or sign writing be nice. Yeah, okay. And don't forget, you can get a little <laughs> bit of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple m. Triple m. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Full on.